All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, day. We thank you for this time that you've given us. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us here to learn about the book of Acts. I pray that you be with me as I teach the class and give me your wisdom, knowledge, and words. And I pray, Lord, that you be with all of us as we learn from your word, that you help us and guide us and teach us and help us to live according to the word so that you may be glorified through our lives. And I pray that for those who are going to be here joining us, I pray that you give them safety as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so some, um, the recap, obviously, we've looked at several of the events that happened in the early chapters of, of the book of Acts. So let's recall what we learned from chapter 5 initially. What happened chapter 5, 1 to 11 verses, or 10? Anybody recall what happened? What was the incident? Ananias and Sapphira. So we're still going to look at some of those things because today we have to finish up the Ananias and Sapphira's uh, narrative, that, that part of the narrative, and also move on to the rest of the things. So, so most important thing is um, basically in 5, 7 to 9 what happened. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. So before that, we learned that Ananias... While he was hearing the words of Peter, we learned that Peter may be a little bit harsh on Ananias, and uh, you know some even make the comment like Peter was harsh on Ananias, but I don't think there's anything harsh words coming out. This, obviously, truth always seems what? I mean, if you're really, really speaking the truth, then it's going to be a little harsh, right? Yeah, you know, there's that true, uh, speak truth in love. <laughs> even if we try to speak truth in love, it's still going to be coming out as harsh. I mean, there's no, uh, there's, there, we cannot, we, we cannot dilute the truth to make it easy on the ears. Truth is truth. So uh, obviously when Peter was addressing these concerns, uh, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. We know that. We've already seen that. And Peter was sort of the leader of this entire group and he was up and talking to Ananias and he questioned several of ways. He, he tried basically, well, I wouldn't say he tried, but he he questioned Ananias to an extent where he would actually feel at least what he has done. So Peter questions Ananias, why did you let Satan fill your heart? To lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of land. So, uh, so <clears throat> whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. So obviously he is referring back to Holy Spirit and God are same and he is lied to God. And so he kept back some of those things. And Ananias in verse 5, hearing these words, that is a present verb, present active, hearing these words, he fell down. So while Peter was still speaking, he fell down and he gave up his ghost and great fear came upon all them and they heard these things. Yes. I would just say that one thing that I think is kind of interesting and it correlates to the, the passage that you showed last time, Joshua 7, mm -hmm. the story of Achan. So, like, in the story of Achan, it's not just that Joshua walks up to Achan and says, tell me what you did wrong. It's Joshua starts casting lots, starts the process of casting lots. Um, and so, uh, first, it's the tribe of Judah is taken. And then they start going by family by family, and then by individual by individual. Mm -hmm. And so there's this long process where it narrows it down further and further. And at any point in time, Aiken could have said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I did it. Okay? And maybe the outcome would have been totally 
different. Yes. Uh, but but he didn't. He kept trying to double down and hide, even though he saw it getting closer and closer and closer to him. In the same regard, like Ananias in this passage, you know, when Peter confronts him and says, "Hey, did you do this? Did you? I mean, is what you're saying is is are are you saying that this is true? Are you saying that?" You, you sold the property for this much and you gave all of this and this is the full price of the property and he's questioning him on this. He's giving him an opportunity to repent at that moment and say, you know what, I'm sorry, hey, listen, that's not how it sort of played out, you know. And, and so Peter's giving him that opportunity, but he doesn't take it. Instead, he doubles down on his sins. Yeah. He's given the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, when he said, I mean, especially when we look at the later verse uh, uh, four, whilst it remained, was it not thine own? So he was still giving him that opportunity to just come forward. I mean, it's yours to begin with. Nobody asked you to give. I mean, you own everything. You sold everything that's in your power. So why would you then conceive this, this, this evil thing in your heart that they were not light unto men, but unto God? So, I mean, obviously, even though, like you're saying, Ananias probably he knew what Peter was addressing, and he needs to address that to Peter, but then he didn't. He's probably pretending, like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? What, what do you mean uh, it's my own? What do you mean I kept back? What do you mean I kept? Peter, I think you got wrong information. Who knows? Maybe he's building up on his, you know, one, one lie leads to another lie, another lie, another lie, and a pile up of lies where you cannot even escape because it becomes a mountain of lies. <laughs> so probably he was in that position where he was not able to come out of it. Maybe, uh, I mean, obviously he put himself there. So, so in that part, we learn, obviously, Ananias had no way to escape because he's committed that sin. And he, he realized what he has done. So obviously for him, his heart to stop beating. And when he collapsed while listening, while Peter was still speaking, you can, we can understand that the amount of guilt that he may have felt and how may God may have convicted him of what is, what is done because God's presence was present in that time. So as probably we look at uh, some of those verses as well, I don't know uh, why this is blinking on and off. Something wrong with it? In the RL, it's all your stuff in yes. <clears throat> so... Uh, and it was about the space of three hours when his wife not knowing. So we know that after Ananias fell flat on ground and lost his, uh, gave up his life. So we know his wife came in. Obviously, Ananias knew that he was doing something wrong. He was probably convicted. There is also the presence of the Lord. And because that is a fresh new church and Holy Spirit was all over the place. God is all over the place. He was doing great and wonderful things for the community. And they forgot that God is up alive and he's present there in the, in the community and they've done this grievous, this uh, horrible thing and so obviously we know that uh, Ananias fell and dead because of what he's done and where Peter was still speaking and so about that time about the space of three hours after when his wife not knowing what was done came in and so she didn't probably pretend like nothing happened came in and Peter answered unto her tell me whether he sold tell me whether he sold now I have to look at this um so uh, is that? Peter said, how is that ye have agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord? Tell me whether he sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, for so much. Okay, so this is what we did. She obviously doesn't know, uh, or at least didn't know what happened to Ananias. Then Peter said unto her, how is that ye have agreed 
together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord. And we learn back in uh, uh, the first uh, verse, first two verses of the chapter, that she was also along with, many, meaning she was in the plan together. They planned together to do this thing. So how is that you agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them that which have buried the husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. So you're also about to die. So obviously we know what Peter has uh, told to Sapphira and Sapphira also died because she was part of this whole, uh, you know, plot. So, uh, so it, it's, it's interesting how, you know, some people may have thought, may think that this is the unpardonable sin. Have you, how many of you know what that unpardonable sin is? This unforgivable sin. Lying to the Holy Spirit is, yes? Well, I mean, technically, there's, I would say that there's two unpardonable sins. There's one that Jesus says is unpardonable. But if, if you read Hebrews carefully, there are two unpardonable sins. You know, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and apostasy. Mm-hmm. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And apostasy. Okay, so here's, here's, here's my thought. Now, hopefully, everybody, they're probably able to hear and see this. Because uh, what happens here is once I stop, I have to make sure that it goes back live again. So, um, so the unpardonable sin, some of them say that is the, obviously, lying to the Holy Spirit or, you know. For example, in this context, however, Jesus was doing miracles, signs and wonders, right? So these people standing around and observing Jesus, and what was their comment about Jesus when he was doing these things? He is casting out demons. Casting out demons by who? By the spirit of Belzebul, so by the power of Satan. So obviously Jesus then says what you're saying is, I mean, you're accusing the power of God. So obviously that is sin, right, context-based. But I see the unpardonable sin is there's not much lying to Holy Spirit because when you go into the book of Ephesians, you see the, Paul tells us believers to not to grieve the Holy Spirit. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Meaning Holy Spirit is grievable. May I make sense? Maybe we can, we can hurt Holy Spirit. Maybe we're able to make him feel emotionally bad or sad about, about us. God has emotions too, just like we do. So for me, in my thinking, the unpardonable sin could be the unbelief in God. Because this, sorry? Unless you hold the impassive. So I probably that unbelief in God is what I'm thinking because, you know, God, Christ is doing all these things in the midst of these people, right? And, and it's not like they're not fully aware. Like, for example, book of Judges, when you get into book of Judges uh, after chapter one or maybe right before chapter one, I mean, somewhere in between chapter one, you hear that these people do not know the Lord. That this generation, the new generation that come in book of Judges after Joshua and the elders and everybody else died. The Bible says these people do not know Yahweh. So it doesn't mean that he, they are not completely aware of Yahweh. They don't acknowledge him as God. Are you all with me? Because by the time Joshua is done, obviously not all the land was occupied and settled. There's also a lot of... Uh, um, idol worship, at least there's a sense of gravity, gravity towards idol worship, as in chapter 7 we notice that there's robbing and stealing and hiding things. So when you get into the book of Judges, the young generation that came out after the elders were dead, Joshua said unto me and my family, what we are concerned is what? We will serve the Lord or worship the Lord, we will serve the Lord. That is Joshua's generation. So once Joshua's generation, the elders died, there came this newest generation. 
The problem I see is, is, is in, in both people, that is the elders, they're supposed to teach their younger ones the Torah, the instruction. They're supposed to meditate on that. They're supposed to pass it along. So whether they did or not, I don't know. But what I learned in the book of Judges is these people, the new generation, are not aware of Yahweh. So what that means is they're not completely unknown. Yahweh is not completely unknown to them, but they are just not acknowledging that He is their God. I think one of the, one of the issues that comes <coughs> up, and this is something that we talk about in my theology class, and we, we talked about apostasy, and we talked about blasphemy in the Holy Spirit. And I asked my students, I said, well, why do you think that these are unforgivable sins? Why would God not forgive something like that? And my, my issue that I think is, is why they're unforgivable is not because their, their nature is necessarily so heinous that the blood of Jesus can't cover them. It's just that once you commit yourself into this path, you don't want to come back. Okay, so once you once you committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you've made a statement about who Jesus is that you sort of harden yourself into that position. And so, of course, you're not going to ask for you're not going to repent. You're not going to ask for forgiveness in that type of a situation. Um, and when you apostatize you're going to say, well, I know what Christianity is all about, and I want nothing to do with it. And so, no, you're not going to come back from those types of types of things. And so, in, in reality, quote-unquote, unpardonable sins are not unpardonable because Christ can't forgive them. They're unpardonable because people who commit them don't want forgiveness for them. Um, I, I just... It just is. This is taking me back to my parables class. And why would Jesus teach in parables? Not, not because it's just. Yes, go ahead. There's the other issues right after you know, right after Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray. The the uh, anandam to that, or maybe the last part of that is, and if you don't forgive others your tr their trespasses, neither will God forgive your trespasses. And it's just kind of the same idea as Dr. Sarver was saying. If you've gone to that point where you're literally not going to forgive others, then either you're already not a Christian or you really don't understand it and you don't want to be a Christian. So it's like, it's not that God isn't going to forgive you or can't forgive you. It's just like, you're not going to, you're not a Christian. Uh, in, yeah, in other sense, you could say that you, I mean, people tied up God's hands for forgiving them. Like, for example, those uh, the times in their times, in Jesus' times, there were people, all kinds of people watching him do all kinds of things. So he was talking to, talking in parables, like I was just mentioning. So they were not able to understand because Christ himself or God concealed the truth from these so-called Pharisees or, or scribes and Sadducees and everybody else that is watching there. Uh, concealed the truth from them, not because he wants to conceal it, because they have already made up their mind not to believe in him. Right? And so obviously nobody is without, not a single person is without excuse from denying God or believing in Him. That's why I think Paul says in Romans 1, nobody is without excuse. People buy their own trouble. So for God not to forgive these people means they don't want God to forgive them. You know, how many of Pharisees have changed their minds and repented and, and, and fall on Christ's feet and begged for forgiveness? Scribes who think, oh, we are the scholars. I mean, they had an issue with Jesus. Uh, Jesus, if you point at Pharisees, no problem, but don't point at us. We, we are the teachers of the law. <laughs> Jesus says, you think you teach the law, you know the law, but the fact is you don't. Because if you know the law, you would learn about who? 
I'm right here in your midst. They don't see it. So, I mean, these, Christ, Christ is not, I mean, God, even God will not forgive the sins because when you make up that mind and say, I don't need you, God, in my life, then he cannot even help. It's not like he doesn't want to help or he cannot help, but then you make, you tied up his hands from not helping, from him not helping you. So that is what I think, I mean, with unpardonable sin, obviously, like we were talking about, there's uh, blasphemy against Holy Spirit, but there's also the um, unforgiving, forgivable nature, or maybe, uh, what is that I said? Uh, not being able to believe in the Lord. So for example, some of the people request Jesus or actually demand Jesus to do a sign, right? Do a sign and miracles or whatnot. What did Jesus say? What was his response? You pervert generation. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? I mean, he was just so sick and tired of these people looking for something. When he called out Lazarus, Jesus wept. You recall that verse, the shortest one? Is that the shortest one? <laughs> Jesus wept. Why? Because his buddy Lazarus was dead. He knew that two days ago. If Jesus is omniscient, obviously, which he is, he knew that Lazarus is going to die. He knew Mary and Martha are going to cry and you know, even complain to Jesus. If you, Lord, if you only came here like a couple days ago, it would have been nice. He's dead now for four days. Jesus wept. And with a loud voice, with that deep sadness in Jesus, he cried out, Lazarus, come out. It's not like he, could just hit, he couldn't just hit the tomb and just say, out. He would have gotten up and came out. But he cried out loud. Why did Jesus weep? Not because his best friend or one of his friends died, but because of unbelief in the people surrounding him. Because those people who are watching Jesus, they're like, let's see what kind of stuff he's going to do now. They're wanting to see signs and wonders. And Jesus was not willing to give that anymore because God did this long time ago. Now I'm going back into Old Testament, y'all forgive me. Jesus did this long time ago. I mean, God did this long time ago when he told Moses not to hit the rock. Don't do a physical act. Don't do a physical thing. Only speak. The second time, the first time God told Moses to hit the rock, obviously he did. Second time, he didn't even say in the text, hit the rock. He said, speak. God was even tired by then to not to do any great wonders and miracles because he's done so many things when he brought these people out of Egypt. What else is he going to do? I split the Red Sea right in front of your eyes. What, am I, what, do, we, what do you need me to do? Split the planet in two? Even if I go that far and do, you won't believe me. How many times, like we said, the Jewish people tested the Lord? Ten times they tested God. They tested the Lord to see if he's really worthy to be, uh, for us to believe in him. If he's really worth our life, our time. How can these people set their mind to that extent when they have witnessed God doing wonderful things to rescue them from the land of Egypt? It's not like God cannot just you know, breathe on Egypt and all Egyptians, uh, Pharaoh and everybody else would die on, on, on that very, very second, bring his people out. But God also proved himself that he is mighty. There is no um, competition for him. There is no Ra'av or whoever God, the bull God, the Egyptians worship. There is nobody that could stand in front of Yahweh. He proved that he brought them out with mighty works and great things. And yet these people complain. What an ungrateful generation that is. Right? Huh. Israel's God's elect. Lord, help me. I'm going into Old Testament. Israel's God's elect people, right? Well, if they elect people, they're promised that they're going to be brought into promised land, but they, 
first generation, they didn't, they, they didn't come to promised land. People died in the wilderness, right? Because of their rebellious nature against the Lord. The Lord killed them. So, uh, I mean, this is another thing. Even the elect thing, maybe we can talk about that later on. Even the elect were to be loyal to the Lord, obedient to the Lord. There's no obedience to the Lord. In those generations, they tested the Lord over and over again. And God, I think he, he, he was exhausted because what else can he do? He's done everything that he wants to do to show these people who he is and his power so they could rely upon him. They could trust him completely. I'm the one with, who brought you out, of my, out with my mighty hand, with my right hand or power. And you can rely upon me. God was calling them to rely, but obviously these people were doing what? Doing the opposite. Testing, testing, testing. Complaining to Moses. Moses said, Lord, I don't, I don't, look, man, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Can you just kill me? Because I'm sick and tired of these people. Just take me off from here. I don't want to lead. Moses, Moses, they're not complaining against you. They're murmuring against me. They're complaining against me, so I'm going to take care of it. So you hold on, Moses. Okay, do it quick. Because I don't have any more patience. Moses, God told Moses, these people want to try me. They want to test me. Okay, speak old words only. Don't even hit the rock. God didn't mention hitting the rock, so Moses did what? <clears throat> you stiff-necked people. Is this what you wanted? Bam! You slapped the rock. God, did, God said, I'm going to stand on the other side and watch. I'm going to be right here, Moses. Just speak. I'm going to perform. Speak, Moses. Speak. What is that God is doing? He's not really interested in signs and wonders. He's not interested to show his mighty power to these people. He wants these people to believe in his word. What are we to believe? In signs and wonders or in God's word? The Signs and wonders are not the ones that are sharper than two-edged sword. What is it? What is sharper than two-edged sword? The word is the powerful one, not the signs and wonders. God even, God even did not want to perform those things to satisfy these people. And then Christ comes to this earth, the creator, you know, the, the very uh, God who helped these people back in the days. He comes down to earth and these people are still saying, show us wonders and signs. How long? How long should I do this? How, when are you going to believe in me? I'm asking you to believe in me. That is all. Believe in me. How long do I need to perform? So obviously God decided not to perform. He's not going to do any of these things. No more wonders. No more signs. You believe in my word. Right? I mean, coming into this chapter, even before all these things happen, like Acts chapter 5 and so forth, we are looking that people were giving into the apostles' teaching. Was that word? Teaching is basically... Presenting God's word, teaching God's word. And those people were following the word of God, right? And while they were observing, following the word of God, they were fellowshipping with all together. And they were giving themselves to, as a, they're dedicating their lives to God by giving or following apostles' teaching and so forth. God was also doing signs and wonders, doing miracles among in the midst of their ministry. So, in other words... We are seeing here, as some, some might be thinking, again, going back to the point, some might be thinking that this is, uh, has to do uh, about the unforgivable sin, uh, unpardonable sin. But, I mean, you could point out both things, lying to the Holy Spirit at the same time, unbelieving, because what we see in Ananias was basically an unbelief in God, yes or no? The, the people of the Old Testament, they tested the Lord. I mean, didn't, didn't Peter say, why are you testing the Lord? 
right? I'm trying to find that verse where he said, uh, why have you, uh, where is the, hmm, is that three? And as why had Satan filled the heart to Holy Spirit, keep back part of the land? There's actually a, the term that he says, why are you trying or testing? But maybe I'll find it as we go through. But here, even here, they were testing the Lord in the Old Testament because of unbelief in God. So what is the difference here? Ananias was also testing the Lord, right? In some sense, like he doesn't believe fully in God or at least in his presence, even though God has performed so many things in their midst. How can you be, how can you be, be so off-minded when you just witnessed God doing so many mighty things in your midst? How can you do that, Ananias? And Sapphira, how can you do along with your husband? Why did you agree to do this such, such a... Bad thing, and so obviously they don't have any response, any answer. Both die. Sapphira is not exempt from this incident because she planned together with her husband. So this is an indication for the love of wealth and fame rather than the love towards God. Many people have that love towards God in the in these chapters, and we can see that because people are dedicated to serve the Lord in some form or the way. But these people, at least, thought in their mind, nobody is watching, nobody is seeing them. At least they're doubting the presence of the Lord in the midst of this new church. How can God not be active in this new church? God was active in this church. In fact, what is the power of apostles who were healing the lame and in the healing the sick people that are brought to them? It is power of God. God working through Peter and the apostles. So how can you, I mean, obviously word spreads. How can you not see all these and yet completely give yourselves to God and keep things aside for yourselves. God is watching. Basically, what they're saying is, nobody is watching. We don't care about anything, anybody else. Let's do what we want to do. So, yes. I would say, like, this is also, this also stands as something that I think a lot of times we're not careful about, and that is the issue of belief. Um, as Jerry Bridges would put it, this is one of the more respectable sins uh, in the church. That you know, you're not going to get kicked out of the church if, if you're greedy or, or something like that. People aren't generally going to call you to account for it. But it seems over and over again in the Bible that Jesus took it very seriously because he said uh, that money is the root of all kinds of evil uh, and that you've got this situation in the book of Acts. And then Paul brings it up and talks about how a lot of people shipwreck their faith. Uh, because of this greed issue. And the problem is, you don't have to be rich to be greedy. You can be poor and be greedy. Yes. And, uh, you know, and it, it affects everybody across the entire spectrum. All, of it, all it takes is just that, that love of stuff, that love of money. It doesn't mean you have to have a lot of it, okay? It just means that you have to really want it. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah, that that desire, the greed is the sin, basically. And, and that's even, even a dangerous thing to be greedy of things. And so in this chapter, in this passage, we see it. That's what's happening. They're greed. They're, they want to keep it back. I mean, they, they're not really completely willing to give. And you see, I mean, it's not like nobody asked them to give everything. I mean, nobody's asking us to give everything. It's just that... Uh, that nature that is in us where we, we don't want to give it all. We want to just give a little bit, even though we know we can give some more extra, 
In other words, the more we keep, the more we want to keep. The more we get, the more we want to get. And even the little, for example, let's say I only have $10. And so within the $10, I have a need for so and so amount of things to be done. And I have remaining $3 left. So if I restrict myself from giving that $3 that I don't really need, what is that saying? And if I only give one, and that too by force, oh, I can keep this dollar for something. Maybe I can get a coffee somewhere, but hmm, where is the offering plate? I don't know. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't go there. You, know, you might need this dollar later on. It's okay. I'm going to give it to the Lord. No, you don't. He doesn't need your money. Just keep it safe. Keep it in your pocket. You don't need it later. You see what I'm saying? So that is the greedy nature when obviously God delights in what giver? Cheerful. cheerful. We don't have to give millions. He just likes a heart that is happy to give, a cheerful giver. He doesn't, he didn't put any limits on it. But but humanity, I mean, there is some some part of the greediness which is obviously sin. Um, so people try to keep things. And this 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 part of the text, they tried, they actually, they actually kept things. They didn't even try. They kept things thinking that God is going to be okay. I mean, look at this, 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 um, the, the sort of overlap, but really not overlap. Look at these events, though. In the Old Testament, they're trusting the Lord. They're trying the Lord. They're trying to tempt the Lord. In other words, is he worth believing or not? Even in here, in this passage, we see that testing and trying the Lord. Back in the Old Testament, there's the presence of the Lord. Even here, there is presence of the Lord. Obviously, the church is new. Holy Spirit is active because Christ sent the Holy Spirit after he left, right? The Comforter came after he left, so he's active in the church. But then they somehow they forgot that God is present in their midst and they've committed this sin. Are you trying to belittle God, Ananias and Sapphira? Are you trying to insult God? Do you think God is going to take that, all right, he's going to be okay when you try to insult him? Are you with me? God is not always going to be okay with people insulting him. So this is one of those events. The issue here is that Ananias and Sapphira wants outward recognition for what they did as opposed to Barnabas who didn't crave for any recognition. They want to keep some up and give some so that they could get a name from the church as opposed to Barnabas who gave all his and did not seek any form of recognition. So in form, in some form, they are testing the Lord. And, uh, and we can compare these, the testing of the Lord as we've just talked about how people of Israel back in the days tested the Lord. So here in 17.7, the, the verses, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now that's a serious, serious, serious thing because the Lord was among his people in Acts, right? The Holy Spirit God is among his people. He was among them performing things, but they're still testing. Is he really worth to believe? Is he really in, uh, in, in our midst? Is he really doing these things? Is he really? Is he really? What is that? What did, what did Satan tell Eve in the garden? Did he really say that? Right? Oh, Eve, did he really say that? Guess what? He doesn't want you to be like him. So sorry, right, take the fruit. Yes. Said or the easy answer for Eve. Yeah, but I think is that really what we mean by this? I mean, 
that's what Satan usually gets to us at. It's not really what he wants. He, he gets us to doubt the simple commands of yeah. God. You know, is that really what the commands? Should you really not do it? I don't think so. Come. Come well, I mean, we see the similar thing. Is it really among us? Uh, maybe not. Let's just take that maybe not and do our thing. And so they did that. So they were testing the Lord just like they tested in the Old Testament as well. So their lie, this is one of the quotations, their lie contained within, the, within it the assumption that the Spirit would not do anything. Conscious or not, it was a challenge to, as to whether God was really present in the church and we know that He was. Will He respond or will He turn a blind eye to their deception? As noted uh, later in the New Testament, several of the passages, that is a dangerous challenge. God responds and they die. So they're basically testing the Lord. And obviously God responded with their test and what happened to them. And we learned right after this, the fear of the Lord came upon them. So that is the death. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. So we will learn about that as well. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, that is his wife, and yielded up the ghost. And the young man came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. So what happened later on? Important things. Verse 5, we learn, and great fear came upon all who heard of it, not heard of it, typo. And in verse 11, we learn, and a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And this is very important because People now fear the Lord because of what has happened there. They, they watched it, they saw it, and they're aware of the presence of God. And God is not going to take things lightly. The fear of the Lord came upon them. The corollary is uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, you get that picture of Israel at uh, Mount Sinai. And when God descends down the mountain, he gives the Ten Commandments. And you see the, the cloud of fire, the, the, the horn. Speaks to them, and suddenly they're they're absolutely terrified. And they're like Moses, you go talk with God because we're afraid that if, if he talks to us, we're going to die. And then God's response is, "Oh, that this people would fear me like this forever, that they might be rebelled." Mm -hmm. Even then, that's only like after a few days, <laughs> they become something else. I mean, I'm just, you know. Exaggerated, but after a few weeks, maybe they become like you know, almost the enemies of the Lord. But yeah, the fear of the Lord fell upon the, they, they feared the Lord, and that is also an important thing because God delights in those who fear the Lord. Fear doesn't mean you, you know, I always say it doesn't mean that you fall on ground and beat yourself to death to revere God. They were so at that point when fear came upon them, basically, they were so in that you know, God just said, Don't let these people come to this mountain because they need to do what consecrate themselves. They got to prepare their hearts. They got to prepare themselves before they come to me. So when they heard the voice of the Lord, obviously within that context, the fear fell upon them. They greatly feared the Lord and they begged Moses, don't you go there and talk to God. We don't want to talk to God. So here also we see that great fear fell in the people. And the term fear is also important in the book of Acts, especially in this chapter, because as we read through this chapter, we will learn when Peter and the disciples were arrested again, or they were tried to bring these people back to face the Sanhedrin. The, the, the officers there, the officers of the temple, they feared. They feared and they did not put their hands on the apostles. They didn't lay their hands on the apostles as to they drag them into the prison because they feared that people would beat them, would stone them. 
So again, the same terminology, same understanding here. We see in this chapter and also later, later down, uh, in this verse and also later in the chapter, the fear is an important concept. So, and a great fear fell upon them. And a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So that is the work of the Lord, basically. Right? Their immediate death without a chance to repent, probably, as uh, we look at the next verses, because Ananias and Sapphira did not get a chance to repent. Did they ask the Lord to forgive them? There's no time, right? While Peter was still speaking, Ananias died. There's no time for repentance. And Sapphira, Peter said, just like your husband is dead, somebody's going to come and pick you up. So you're also out. You're also dead. They didn't have any chance to repent. So their immediate death without a chance to repent probably had two reasons. Number one, it was the first time that believers had issued such a challenge to God. So it was important for God to act clearly and decisively to prevent any misunderstandings about the reality of his presence and his willingness to hear and judge. Importance again here is the presence of the Lord. So second, it was the time of intense spiritual presence and where the evidence of God's presence is greater, the sin of challenging the presence of, is more serious. Again, all this is tied up with the presence of Holy Spirit God among them and also the challenge towards God. So there also may be mercy involved in such a judgment while death is an ultimate penalty from, from the human perspective. From divine perspective, it is far less serious than a continued movement into sin and deception. The quick divine judgment prevents full apostasy. What if they were really going to do something more? Ananias and Sapphira. Could, it be the, could that be a possibility? And God took them, Right? Some people even say, well, Christians, if we continue to live in sin, God's going to take you because he doesn't want you to continue to live in sin. And this is one of the examples that they take uh, from this chapter. So I don't know what is going on with this, but uh, I think uh, we got like five minutes, so let's continue. So um, where I even missed the track of... Uh, this thing here, so I don't know what is happening. Anybody knows what's happening here? Source search. Oh. So uh, looking at First uh, Corinthians eleven thirty-two, as was mentioned in the passage before, First Corinthians eleven thirty-two says, "But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord." that we should not be condemned with the world. So there is obviously the Lord's involvement in killing Ananias and Sapphira because they pro he probably doesn't want them to move on with their lives as to uh, they might continue doing what they're doing. Okay, reading of the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we could learn some things about God and also draw some applications for the church and for us. All right, so we'll continue with this here. Some of the applicational things that we can learn from Ananias and Sapphira is God shall not be mocked or fooled. God shall not be mocked or fooled and he will respond to insults. He's not going to take it. He's not going to take it. He's not going to continue to take on the insults. So God is holy and he is just and he is merciful, compassionate, long-suffering, yet he chastises us. He punishes us for the improved behavior. God is not uh, simply sitting on the chair so that he could beat his people to death, right? Why would he punish? Why would he punish us? Why would he teach us a lesson so that we could learn something out of it? So God shall not be mocked or fooled. That is something that we could learn from this. 
and he will respond to the insults because he is holy, he is just, he is not some sort of a, you know, a person who does magic. He's serious God. He's, he's, he takes things seriously. And so also one of the things that we, we should notice is at that time when Ananias and Sapphira were doing these things, God's work is also uh, going greatly among the people. So in other words, obviously the devil doesn't want to, well, doesn't want God's work to be um, you know, growing in every area, expanding in every area. He wants to do whatever he wants to do, stop from the work of God to be uh, expanding all over the place. And, and on one side, God is doing these great things. And when these people come into the community of the Lord by keeping these things or by trying to test the Lord, he's not going to let that happen because, again, we could talk parallel to what God has commanded to the people of Israel, uh, the sons of Israel, the children of Israel, before they get, got into the land of Canaan. What did he tell them? What were the people of uh, Israel supposed to do before they got into the land of Canaan? They were supposed to remove any obstacle that is ahead of them, right? They're supposed to remove that sin. They're not supposed to be intermarried nor given on to this worshiper of other beings and so forth. They're supposed to remove the Canaanites from the land in order for them to go and live peacefully. But did they remove these other tribals, other people from the land? No, but they were supposed to remove it. That's where this whole issue of God committing a genocide and calling uh, for his people to go kill all these innocent people comes out from. But God was trying to remove that sin altogether. So even here, God doesn't want this new believer people to, to be okay when there is some corruption going on in their midst. How can he allow that? You can't have, when I'm here, there's no room for corruption. My presence is here, so you need to take care of the serious law. In a sense, God is teaching all of them to take him and his presence very seriously and not do as the Israelites failed in, in the past. And just for a thought, maybe next week you can, for next week you can think about that. Where did Joshua come from? Why was Joshua the only leader to lead Israelites after Moses? This is outside of the book of Acts, so... Why would God pick Joshua and not anybody else? Caleb died in the wilderness, but he lived so long, right? Caleb lived 80 plus years, something around that. But God chose Joshua through Moses to lead Israelites into the land of Canaan. Where was Joshua from? What, huh? Ephraim. Where is Ephraim? South or north? North. Who went? Who who said uh, we can take the Anak people in the land? Don't worry about it. People came. The spies came to Moses and they said, "No, no, no. We cannot do this because they're so crazy. They're huge. They're in, they're insane people. We cannot take them down." But who came forward and said, "Don't worry about that." Caleb and, and who? Joshua. Here's here's. Well, maybe you should maybe I should leave you to think about why God chose Joshua and not anybody else to lead Israel. Was it because he's from Ephraim? If it is from Ephraim, what is the significance? Or my other question would be, does Joshua know the land better than anybody else? Is there a possibility for Joshua that he might have known the land better than anybody else? There's that tilt. You know, you see that ascendancy of Ephraim, but then because he's a son of Joseph, but then you get to that point where you get the ascendancy of Judah and you get the, the Judah king. King, and you get that switch. 
my understanding, well, maybe I should leave it alone. My, my understanding is that Joshua, coming from Ephraim, Ephraim is, is, is very, uh, I mean, God chose him to lead his people because that is his, there's a strategic plan for Joshua to be involved in leading these people into the land of Israel because he's known the land well than anybody else. He knows the land a lot better than anybody else. That's why he's been through this all. He's been through this land so he could say, don't worry about that. We can take those Anak, Anak people down. It's not a big deal. <laughs> so anyways, I don't know why I got into that, but we'll continue from here next week because we're out of time. So any questions before we leave? We're, st we're still in Ananias and Sapphira. I think we'll be, we're done for now with Ananias and Sapphira. Yes. Blasphemy, well, what is blasphemy in general? To lie about, yeah. So in other words, uh, you're, I'm blaspheming against you, meaning what? I'm, I'm trying to create unnecessary things and untruthful things, or I'm trying, yeah, I'm trying to gossip, so forth, or, you know, discredit you from who you are, really. So all this is blasphemy. So when we blaspheme against Holy Spirit, it's basically we're not giving the proper credit to God for what he's doing. Holy Spirit is God, right? Like if, like if I'm one of those Pharisees and Jesus was in the crowd and I said, you are casting out these demons by the help of Beelzebub. Obviously, that is an insult to God. I mean, why would God need satanic spirit to cast out satanic spirits? Satan cannot fight on his own. I mean, why would he want to fight, uh, you know, fight back on himself? That is, I mean, even their question, even their comment is just a so senseless comment. But then they're insulting the Spirit of God as if God's Spirit doesn't have any power. Uh, and Satan, in fact, doesn't have any power against the Lord. So they're uplifting what? You, you, you're casting out demons. Yes, this is going on. And uh, we've seen this before. But you're doing this because of the power of the devil. But he's doing not because of the power of the devil. Because the devil cannot cast himself out. It is God's spirit, God's power that is uh, showing, being shown there, but then people doubt the, sp the spirit of God, the power of God, and they give credit to the devil. So blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is basically, you're not recognizing what God is doing. And then how is devil and Holy Spirit going to go together? Right? They're two opposite beings, so obviously that is an insult to God. So insult... Speaking of insult or insulting God is himself is in some ways blaspheming against God. And that's what happened. When they insult God in some form or way, they're dead. That is the punishment of the Lord. So we could say, what if I've insulted God and God didn't take me? Well, we better not insult God. Because he's not always going to take things easy. He's not, see, he's forgiving, but again, he doesn't have to forgive. If you choose not to forgive. He's forgiving God. He's loving kindness. He's told that already. Way back in the books of Old Testament. I'm, I'm, I'm loving kindness. I'm compassionate God and so forth. But if you don't allow me. In other words, if you tie my hands from, from forgiving you. From comforting you. From being with you. and I mean, we can resist. Right? We have the capacity to, to resist. So when we don't let God to take care of us. Obviously, he's not going to come forward and force us. So if we don't want God to forgive, he's not going to forgive. So let's not take God lightly, even though this is not working, but I have so many applicational things that I want to talk today. 
and time is not always within. So any questions before we close? Okay, let's close in prayer, then we'll depart and meet next week. Lord, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you help us to take you seriously and help us, Lord, to understand who you are. That's where it begins, how we can take you seriously. Thank you, Lord, for all the things that you have done in our lives. And I pray that you help us live like those of uh, the faithful people that have lived in the book of Acts in, in that time. I pray that you lead us and guide us uh, and also be with uh, Pastor Wes who's going to speak to us this morning. Give us your word and help us to be receptive to your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.